Ladies and gentlemen, this is the It's Not That Deep podcast with myself, Jack Oland, who has a interest in breaking down films, and then we've got my pal on my left, Martin Diverge, Yo. who likes building them back up again. <laughs> and we are hot off the heels of watching Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, the new Quentin Tarantino film. Sick film. We've film. just got back from our viewing at the brand new Odeon Cinema in Leicester with its reclining chairs that I must amazing. say... Amazing. Amazing. Absolutely gorgeous. Just just the best. You get a table, you get a reclining chair. Ah, oh, it was luxury. It's like, it's like sitting in bed. Mm. It's like you're at home. So, what did you think of the film, Martin? Before we get started, um, if... Any of you have not seen the film, this is probably the turning point because there's going to be spoilers. Mm. Um, so Yeah, we're going to be going deep. Deep into it. A lot of cover to go through. Um, but yeah, if you want to turn back now, it's the time. If you're still here, fuck it, let's go. Uh, I gotta say, it's it was a fucking sick film. I really enjoyed it. Didn't think I was gonna enjoy it that much, but it got to me. It got to me. Yeah, I mean, what do you think? Obviously, we've we've seen it within the last hour, so I'm still pretty hyped up on it. Mm. But the minute it ended, I did think that is a four point five out of five for me. That is that ticked a lot of boxes, and it um. The last half an hour was absolutely uh, exhilarating. Oh my God, so good. The basic premise of the film is you've got Leonardo DiCaprio playing... Rick Dalton. Rick Dalton, who is a film star. The film set begins in 1969, and Rick Dalton's had a career since the, since the 50s, throughout the 60s, and he's kind of come to a point in his career... What, what did you say? 60s? Yeah. Nah, 50s. No, the film starts in 69. Yeah, I know, but, but he's, he, had, he's yeah, had a career from... Yeah, I said 50s. Since, since the 50s into the 60s. Ah, okay. And um, he has reached a point in his career where he's mostly playing the bad guy in films that gets beaten up. And the film actually starts with an, an exchange between him and a movie executive played by Al Pacino. And Al Pacino's kind of saying to him, so in this next film, you're going to be the big bad guy. And you're going to get... Again. Yeah, again. And you're going to get beat up by the new up-and-coming star. And kind of this jolts in Rick's brain that this might be the beginning of the end of the end of his career. And yeah. He's not handling that too well. Starts crying, to be he, fair. To his best friend and stuntman... Played by Brad Pitt. Mm -hmm. Cliff. Cliff Booth. Cliff Booth. And he, as I just said, plays Leonardo DiCaprio's stuntman in all of his films. And he is a kind of an easygoing guy who looks after Rick, really. He, um, Rick's got a DUI, can't drive, and he drives Rick everywhere, looks after his house... Um, he, when he's away, yeah, when he's away and whatnot. So he's he's a good friend, yeah, and he's also a worker, yeah, a very good worker. And then you're introduced to a few side characters. You've got Margot Robbie playing Sharon Tate, and if you've not seen the trailers, then yes, this film does delve into the Charles Manson. Law of Los Angeles, and uh, you get to you get to see Roman Palowski. You get to see Bruce Lee, 
makes a cameo. You get to see Charles Manson himself and the extended family around him. Not the actual Bruce Lee. No, not uh, I believe just the actual Bruce Lee is dead. Yes, yeah. So, um, <laughs> just for anyone out there that didn't know, that would be an impossibility. Um, and the general plot of the f- film is I'd say the first half of the film is setting up Rick Dalton and Sharon Tate. And it, they, live, they live next door to one another. Sharon Tate, Roman Pulowski lives next door to Rick Dalton and uh, his, his wife. Yeah, but you don't... He lives alone for the first half of the film. Ah, oh, I see. And then the second half, when he goes over to Italy, then he meets his wife. Ah. So that first half, you're getting a lot. It's a lot of setup. I mean, not mm-hmm. a not a lot happens, and it it left me feeling. I was kind of like, where is that Tarantino edge? Where is that? Because all of Tarantino's films are outrageous. They're over exaggerated. They're kind of just over the top in every way. You know, Kill Bill, Pulp Fiction, Inglourious Bastards all have moments of almost excruciating intensity in them. Violence. Yeah, violence. Very. Even if it... it emotional if violence. Hans Lander's conversations in Inglourious Bastards have the same sort of intensity that the adrenaline needle scene in Pulp Fiction has. There's just an intensity that runs through it all. But the first half of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is it's very easygoing. Mm-hmm. It's, it's yeah. a lot of it's... It gets you into the film. You're like, oh, this is this is a very nice uh, film. It has a, some comedy elements in it, yeah, it's, which are quite, quite nice. It's almost light-hearted. Mm-hmm. And you feel... Oh, I was just waiting for this dramatic turn. <coughs> um, Sorry about that. I absolutely loved seeing Tarantino. I bet I, th- I get the feeling Tarantino had a lot of fun uh, getting to recreate all these 50s and 60s styles of film. There's a lot of... Rick Dalton has been in a lot of westerns in his time, mm-hmm. and um, you get to see clips from the films that he, he's been in, and they are just lovely homages to... Uh, to the films of that era. Mm-hmm. You see a lot of Hollywood in its in its sort of heyday. And there's almost a kind of a clash difference. Immediately after that first scene we were just talking about where Rick Dalton has just had the meeting with Al Pacino, you see he, he's crying on Brad Pitt's shoulder and they drive past a bunch of hippies that you can see through the car window. Mm-hmm. And he, he, he's in tears. He's still kind of getting over the uh, emotion of the conversation that he's just had. And he looks out the window and he's like, fucking hippies. And that is a very, um, it's very telling. Because obviously, you know, we're sat behind this big Mandela Martin, like we, which looks very hippish and stuff. And there's a lot of hippie stuff in our culture, but ultimately hippies are bad, really. They bought around all the peace stuff and stuff like that, but they're really they're layabouts. Yeah. Like you should still get stuff done. Yeah. Like the answer to getting world peace isn't dropping four tabs of acid and making sweet love on the local park. <laughs> and that's like what the hippies really want to do. That's right, yeah. So although there is some empathy to be like I think hippies are very empathetic people. They try and see the the pain of others. And you can see it in this film, but they're, they're also, like, quite aggressive. Well, they are. They're people... Like, if they don't get their way, they're going to let you know in a very violent manner. Well, they're damaged people. You can see all of them. There's a part when Brad Pitt, throughout the film, his character, you keep they keep seeing this kind of troop of girls walking around Los Angeles and they, at the beginning, I think they're going through bins, aren't they, looking for things? Yeah, but they're looking for food. They're looking for food and stuff like that. And they find a lot of food in this bin and just take it back to 
but they look they, they look very happy and free spirited and mm -hmm. whatnot. And um, Brad Pitt keeps locking eyes with one of them, and it happens three times throughout the film. And upon the third time when he sees her, I, was, I just realised while saying that sentence, there's not a lot of like direct plot to talk about. It's just a lot of different events that mm -hmm. happen. They have, like, yeah. They're not specifically all connected. But the third time that he sees this girl, girl, he ends up... She, the, she's hitchhiking Hiking, every yeah. time, and he was going the wrong way the second time he sees her. The first time is just after they've gone through those bins and they're mm -hmm. walking across the street. The second time she's hitchhiking, but he's going the wrong way, so he doesn't pick her up. And the third time, he ends up picking her up. And going the right way. And they're actually going to a place where Brad Pitt's character has worked before on a film yeah. with... Um, Rick Dalton. With Rick Dalton. And <clears throat> so he knows exactly where he's going, and he gets there, and lo and behold, we are at the headquarters of Charlie Manson and the family. And it's a large, abandoned, Western-style town that has been taken over by Charles Manson. For those of you who don't know, Charles Manson was a cult leader in the 1960s. He called his followers the family, and he would he would apply kind of um, biblical meaning to things that were in pop culture at the time. He he decided that the Beatles song Helter Skelter was uh, the beginning of the apocalypse and it was the beginning of madness being brought into the world and all sorts of things like that. And lots of disenfranchised young people kind of clung to this. Yeah. And it became like this cult. And he ended up getting some members of the family to go and kill Sharon Tate and Roman Pulowski, who Sharon Tate was a actress and Roman was her husband and he was a film director. And the reasoning behind it is, was them kind of being the, in the film they describe it as people on television, because all the young people of the world grew up watching television, therefore it was the people on the television that taught them how to kill because there's murder throughout television that as you watch when you're a kid. So that's their kind of MO for murdering these people. They're the movie stars that taught us the darkness in this world, therefore we should kill them. And Charles Manson was obviously arrested for it. He only died a couple of years ago now, but he didn't actually do the murders, it was the family, and he sent them out as his sort of... Uh, troop. Troop. Um, you actually only see Charles Manson in the film once. And that's... Did you notice? That, that's the old guy. That's that long-haired dude that turned up to Sharon Tate's house and her husband, like, looks out the window and he's like, who's that shaggy bastard? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and he, he's looking for someone. So, But I don't think he was looking for someone, was he? That was probably him, like, scoping out the house yeah. to plan the murder yeah. later. Um. So that you only see him once, but they go, you see, you go, they go to the ranch. Well, Brad Pitt does, mm. whose character's name is Cliff. Cliff goes there and he sort of knows who owns the land. Yeah, because he's worked there before. He knows the person who owned, owned the land and he's obviously quite intrigued what has happened to the person who owns that yeah. used to own it. And he, he kind of finds out <clears throat> that George, the proprietor, the owner of the land, has gone blind. And these girls, a lot of the members of the family are young, young women. And they are basically having sex with George and possibly drugging him to just keep him docile. And he all he cares about is someone loves him. He's obviously kind of a Lonely guy. A lonely guy that is... Because he's blind, he doesn't really realise the extent of what's happening around him. He just knows that <laughs> he gets to have sex. and With young girls, yeah. Yeah, and he, he's in a comfortable environment for him, so it's um, he has no impact on what's going on at the mm -hmm. ranch at all. Um, oh, there's so much to talk about, fresh off the heels from this. It's, That's uh, right, yeah. Because it's such a long film as well. 
almost three hours, two hours and 45 minutes. Yeah, it's a long one. Mm. And it, as I said, not too much actually happens. There's a few definitive scenes. And I think the more I think about it and the more it's kind of coming into focus, my impression of the film, I feel like this film mm. gives you an insight into what actors are like and the things they have to go through in their personal lives off the screen. Because normally <clears throat> an actor's job is to be someone that they're not. Yeah. And that <clears throat> makes their actual identity something that's quite sought after. It's quite difficult to know who, who you are. Who was No, I mean, from like a consumer's, from someone from like our point of view, it's difficult to know who these people actually are. In of real course, life. yeah, because they're playing somebody completely different to what they actually are. And the, the tale of Cliff and his, his kind of midlife crisis that he's having of becoming stuntman no 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 of um i didn't mean to say cliff why i meant leonardo dicaprio's character oh rick yeah i think the the kind of midlife crisis that rick's going through of realizing that it's he's not in his heyday anymore that's something that you'd never see that side of an actor it, they'd never no. show that yeah yeah of course not because no. they want you to see the character that they're sort of portraying there's this great scene when uh rick's he's doing a western film and there's this eight, yeah eight-year-old girl who um is reading a book and i noticed actually in that scene rick walks over he chuck he's drinking a cup of coffee he chucks his coffee on the floor then he takes a swig of whiskey from his flask and then he lights a cigarette up. And that's such a juxtaposition to have this little girl next to him who's so, like, pure and not like that. And he mm -hmm. comes over this old, like... But to be fair, he doesn't, he doesn't see her till after... He, after he, he sips the whiskey. And yeah. Then, yeah, but I'm not saying he did that because she was there, but it's just a an indication of where they're both at in their lives mm -hmm. sort of thing. Like, yeah. he has three vices, one after the other. Yeah. <laughs> sort of thing. And she, like, kind of looks at him. He spits on the floor after his... Um, he, he takes a puff of his cigarette and then he starts coughing and wheezing and then he spits on the floor and, like, hocks, hocks a loogie. Mm -hmm. And she looks at him like, you're a piece of shit. Yeah, but he also says sorry. He does say sorry yeah. and he's nice about it. And then... In turn, he's reading a book about a cowboy that used to break in horses, riding them. Mm -hmm. And he used to be really good at it, but he he had an accident and his spine, he has some spine issues now and he just can't break them in like he used to. Mm -hmm. Which is obviously like exactly what he's going through in his yeah, movie like, career. Yeah, exactly. Like he's, he's, he's basically the, per, the cowboy who used to break horses. Yeah. He's just... He's really used to be really good at his career, and now he's stumbled while trying to break a horse, and completely messed up his back. Meaning, his career is over. Yeah, it's a nice analogy there for where he's at in his career, and he kind of like brushes it off to begin with because he asks the little girl, "What are you reading?" And she says, "I'm reading a biography of Walt Disney." <laughs> She's a very articulate young lady um, very smart for her an eight-year-old yeah definitely and um then she asks him what are you reading and he, he proceeds to tell the tale and at the end of it he, he breaks down in tears and it's it's obviously through having to explain it to someone he probably knew on some sort of subconscious level that's why he was reading the book yeah sort of thing but it was not until he says it out loud that he breaks down in tears because he realizes that is my i'm reading this book because this is my life sort yeah. of thing because um, he says to her at the beginning, she asks him, oh, how is it? And he's like, oh, it's so-so. It's, it's okay. It's okay. Because he, know, he, he knows subconsciously that she, he is that person. Yeah, and people don't want to admit, you know, when they're in pain. And people don't want to admit when they're in that position. But it, it, saying it out loud, obviously, like, bought that out in him. And he just yeah. breaks down. Um, to which... Directly after that, another interesting scene, I thought, was when he then does a scene and he absolutely, uh, he fucks it all up. He, he's missing his lines. He, he's just very unconfident. He's stuttering. 
and um, he goes into his trailer afterwards and absolutely goes mental. He has a breakdown. He's like, <laughs> yeah. he's like, uh, you embarrassed yourself out there, Rick. Why would you do that to yourself? Yeah, talks to himself in the mirror. Yeah, he's like, you're stuttering and that's because you're an alcoholic. You drink too much. Yeah. And then he's like, instantly swigs his thing. <laughs> that's it, yeah. And then just <laughs> opens the door, throws it out. And you could see him like losing his shit because when he talks into the into the mirror, he's just constantly like, look, if you don't get your shit together, I, I'm going to take you home and shoot you in the head. Your brains are going to be all over my pool. <laughs> that's it. Like, I just... But then you think about it and then you... You kind of just go, well, you're talking to yourself. You're meaning you, you're trying to kill yourself if you don't get this right. Yeah, he's talking like there's two people. Yeah. <laughs> but Which makes me laugh because it's just like he's having a, a breakdown. over. And it, to be fair, in the scene, he only missed two lines. He did, but I think it, that scene, I really enjoyed it because it's such a testament to the level of perfection and commitment to the actors are putting themselves under. And she, there's a nice little bit with that little girl actually where um, he asks her his, her name and she says, I only... When she's on set. Yeah, I method, owned, basically. Yeah. I method act and I, because she's all about being better. Her attitude towards acting is, she, she says, if I can be better, I will be better. Yeah. Sort of thing. So if she can just be that little bit better then she will do it. Yeah. Because she says that, mm. she says that, um, yeah, she, if she goes by her own name instead of her stage name, it feels like she does a little bit worse than if she went by her, act, uh, her stage name. So she always goes by her stage name. Yeah, the character that she's playing. Yeah. And that is, uh, again, it shows you, I think, that was obviously meant to be 50, 60 years ago. I think that's where like, actors are today. You watch that, um, <clears throat> have you seen that Jim and Andy documentary? It's about Jim Carrey making a film back in the 90s called Man on the Moon that I've not actually seen, but he, um, the film studio didn't want, they wouldn't let the footage be released of this making of the film because they thought that it would, people would think Jim Carrey was a bad person. And it's because what he did is he method acted the whole thing because he was playing this stand-up comedian who died called Andy Kaufman. And he did it kind of... Uh, he method acted it so intensely that he kind of became the man. And he... The, the actual comedian's family came to the set and spoke to Jim... As if... As if it was Andy and yeah. hugged him and like had this moment where they kind of felt like it was they were meeting their son again. Mm -hmm. And I think that's like where we're at with acting these days. But the fact that that documentary was like, had to be held from the public shows where the public's kind of perception of method acting is. It's not seen as... Right, it's just... Well, it's seen as crazy yeah, and a step crazy, too far yeah. sort of thing. But that is where kind of actors' heads are. You. And I think to an extent, like musicians and just most people in the entertainment industry have to put a mask on. If you own a business or if you kind of um, represent anything, you, you put a mask on. You don't show that real personality and that messes with your head. Obviously, you can see that Rick Dalton is arguing with himself as mm -hmm. if there's two people in the room. It's, it's like a fractured personality sort of thing. And you, um, you don't get to hear a whole lot about that in like the main mainstream media sort of thing. And I thought this film showed a lot of the things that actors have to go through emotionally, being an actor sort of thing. Yeah. You, when, you, when you're watching him, it's just like, and you're in that sort of like uh, level of entertainment when you're an actor, you kind of like feel for him. Mm. You, you want it to work out for him, but obviously not everyone can, or not everyone will succeed in acting, no matter how good they are. Well, there's not, I know what you mean. There's no, um, 
there's not enough room for everybody. No, of course so that not. I get. I think that again is that's a reason why people are so intense and committed with it because it's a dog eat dog world. That's there, right, right. Yeah. And Hollywood especially is uh, particularly brutal in that aspect. Yeah. So if you, I think if you're planning to get into the entertainment industry, you need a very solid guys that you're going to put on, and you have to yeah. kind of. Uh, you don't have to act only in the films. You have to act as well in, in real life. In real life, and the business side of it, which I thought was highlighted really good by the arc of uh, Rick Rick Dalton. That was a great little thing. And then you've got Sharon Tate, played by Margot Robbie, and I really enjoyed the scene. It's she uh, the film. The Wrecking Crew, featuring Dean Martin, has just come out. and She's in it. She's in it. Sharon Tate's in it. And she kind of is walking down Hollywood Boulevard and she sees a cinema that is playing the film and she decides to go and watch her own film. And Which is understandable. Well, yeah, it is understandable if you saw your own, you know, you go and buy your own CD, you go watch your own film, anything. Mm-hmm. Sort yeah, of, thing. of course, yeah. So, um, but she... Obviously, like, you could see it was quite nerve-wracking for her because she, she, the joke, a joke would be told on screen or there'd be a scene where something, a, a gag had happened and she's, like, looking around to see if everyone is laughing. Yeah. Sort of thing. And she's so, you can see she's anxious about the response it's getting and she's so happy. After it gets such that, a good response. Yeah, that it gets the response that she designed it to have, sort of thing. And that, I think... <laughs> if you see her in that... Uh... In the film, you see her put her feet up onto ah, the chair. I wondered if you noticed this. <laughs> and it's just, it's just, you can see her feet are like dirty. I don't. You don't know about Tarantino's foot fetish, do you? No, I do <laughs> not. I'm so glad you noticed because I saw you, I think I saw you like react when her feet went up. Yeah, I was like, I looked at you and I was like, what? I was like, I'm just going to wait because I don't think he knows about Tarantino. I, I have feet. no idea. Um, and then again, when one of those hippie, when, yeah, when gets, they... the hippie girl gets in the car with Brad Pitt, she puts her feet up and it's a great a shot of her feet. But... Yeah, but they were even dirtier because obviously <laughs> she's a hippie. Tarant- so does, she, does he like, like plenty of dirty feet? Tarantino has a renowned foot fetish. In all of his films, there will be extended close-up shots of feet. Really? You remember, you've seen Pulp Fiction. Yeah. You remember the whole deal with that is John Travolta has to take a man called Marcellus Wallace, who is known as a big, hard bastard. He has to take his wife out on a date. But not on a date, it's like look after her yeah. sort of thing. Um, at the beginning of that film, him and Samuel L. Jackson, he's kind of like saying to Samuel L. Jackson, like, I have to take Marcellus Wallace's wife out for dinner tonight. And he's talking about they're talking about how a foot massage is worse than, I can't remember if it's giving someone oral sex or actually having sex with them, but Samuel L. Jackson's argument is that a foot massage is a lot more intimate. Yeah. Sort of thing. There's a lot more, like, if you, if you were caught with someone's wife, I think Samuel L. Jackson's saying it's worse if he catches you giving her a foot massage than it is if he, he finds... Actually having sex. Yeah. And um, that is like the beginning of Tarantino's foot thing. He, Uma Thurman, who played the main role in Kill Bill, I think I'm right in saying at the premiere of Kill Bill, he drank champagne out of her shoes. So he's got some... Well, he's really like, yeah. Into feet. He's open about it. Yeah, of course, yeah. Sort of thing, he's very Something open be, about uh, it. afraid about um, and then I think there's also this thing, if you look into foot fetishes, there's something about feet that triggers, like, the same bit of the brain as, like, seeing genitals for some people, I think. Because well, it's like a private part of someone. Because it's always in, in shoes. Yeah, it's always in shoes. It's always covered. So I think that's the angle that he's yeah, well, coming you would, from. You would say that, you could say that about anything. Well, I guess you could, but feet are pretty private. Yeah, of course, yeah. Like, some people are funny about feet, like they don't want to see feet. See it. Yeah, they don't want to see Oh, I know someone like that. that. Yeah, so, it, and that, 
I can I can see how it could become sexual for someone, sort of thing. Not for me, but yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, I'm I'm not the biggest. Opposed fan. to it. I'm not. <laughs> feet are fine, <laughs> is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> I have no strong feelings about feet, really. No. Um, but in that, going back to that scene, you can really see like the joy on her face and. I think she constantly had a fear of as well. Like, like when she looking back to see like other people's reaction, she still had had her feet up. And I'm like, if you want to look at someone's reaction, you would literally put your feet down, turn around, no, keep them up. Obviously, that's a <laughs> an artistic guarantee. decision. Yeah, that's right. Um, but I thought that her happiness was a great kind of juxtaposition of where you can be at an actor, the two places you can be at an actor. She's like in a movie theater watching people actively love her work whilst um, Rick is like at the bottom of the barrel sort of thing in terms of like self-confidence. Yeah, but like you, throughout the whole film, a lot of people recognize who Rick is. Mm. So like you get, like when you see that, he doesn't like see it as like, oh, People love my films. Maybe I should um, carry on. He sees it as like, oh, that's just another person we saw. Because he, because uh, he's be done fair, it so much, he's become desensitized to the idea of. He doesn't know who actually likes him for things that he's proud of and stuff like. You can see at the beginning when he's having that conversation with Al Pacino's character, the movie executive, that. The movie, uh, he says, oh, I just came from watching a Rick Dalton two-parter last night, one film after the other. And his immediate reaction, Rick's, is, is like, oh, my God, which one did you see? Like, he, he's ashamed. Yeah, of some of some stuff that he's done, yeah, yeah. Because he's, he's done it so much, sort of thing, that he, he must not know. I think the reason why he's, he's sad now that I think about it is because in the film he says that um, he gave up being... Oh, what, what's the name of that cowboy? Jake. Oh, what's his name? Jake? Jake something. Uh, yeah, he, his biggest role is that he played a cowboy in a 50s sitcom called Bounty... Law. Bounty Law, that's Bounty the one. Law. Yeah. And, and that... everyone recognises him from that. So, but he, he quit doing that role and he stopped the show because he wanted to be a movie actor. Mm. And now that he's it's kind of going downhill from there, he's kind of sad because everyone recognizes him as Bounty Law. As, uh, yeah, as Bounty Law, Jake, whatever his it name was. It was like Jake Tresco or something like that. I, have, I can't It ended in Esco, I think. I have no idea. Either way, everyone, see, <clears throat> everyone sees that and then he's like, ah, oh, fuck, maybe I should have stayed doing that. Because obviously in that, in that uh, series that he was making, he was always the good guy, the bounty hunter. Yeah, so like, true. So now that he went from being the good guy, bounty hunting bad guys, to being the bad guy in every film that he's in, he sees it as like, shit, I fucked it. Yeah, and there's... This thing, I've, I've seen other people talk about it actually in the movie industry where <clears throat> big movie studios will try and keep the flow going of things. And what I mean by that is as actors are getting older, they, the studios take notice of that and they start casting them in more traditional older roles mm -hmm. that move them out of the movie industry and slowly wrap their career down yeah. sort of thing. And then they give more light to the younger stars that are up and coming and give them like the hero roles and stuff like that mm -hmm. and i was you know um i didn't know that this is off topic here but it's really interesting you know conan o'brien yeah the american chat show host yeah i didn't know this but then you know jay leno yeah the other chat show host yeah so jay leno's older than conan and jay leno had um a, a show in the 90s like a chat show. Mm -hmm. And okay. he, he was like, it was like the biggest show in America sort of thing. And he promised, Conan had the late night show. Mm -hmm. So before it, it was, no, it was on after Jay Leno. So okay. you'd have Jay Leno's show and then a few hours later you'd have Conan's show. Yeah. 
And it was promised to Conan by Jay Leno, I think six years prior, that Conan would get the Jay Leno show after Jay Leno leaves sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And that happened, and this was in like 2004, 2005. Conan got Jay Leno's show and did it for six months. And then Jay Leno came back and kicked him off. Really? Yeah. And apparently what that sort of was, was Jay Leno um, kind of getting in with the studio and kind of saying, if this Conan kid messes the show up, I'm still here and I'll come back. And I think that that kind of is emulated in what Al Pacino's character is telling Leonardo's character at the uh, at the beginning. He's kind of saying that the studio will move you on. You are now an old guy. You are now playing the bad guy and all the new young up-and-coming stars are going to beat you up and are going to beat you in all the films and because you're you're on your way out sort of thing. And again, it's just another indication of how vicious the entertainment industry is. He... He... And then he kind of hears that. Well, he doesn't hear it, but he feels like he's just going to break down. He do, yeah, well, it must be really hard to hear. Yeah, he's just like being beaten to a pulp. Emotionally. Yeah, <clears throat> and it's just getting to it. And I think kind of another line that highlights what being in the entertainment industry is all about is the little girl that is um, the eight-year-old that's reading the Walt Disney biography says to him, he sa as she says, you, you want to strive for perfection as an actor. And obviously you can never hit perfection, but it's the journey of striving for perfection that is meaningful. Mm -hmm. And that's going to stay with me, that line. You know, I'm it, going to... It's a good line. I want to take that to heart. But what else do we have to talk about? I feel like we've not touched... The last half of the film is a large contrast to... Uh... And to be fair, probably the best. Half of Definitely, because as I was saying earlier, you kind of feel you're wondering where the Tarantino outrageousness, the ultra violence, all of that. Where is it? It's, it's not been. It's, it's largely emotional. But before we get into that bit, something that will lead to it as you, as we talk about it, it's Cliff when he obviously Brad Pitt, Brad Pitt's character when he goes to the family in the ranch he makes it he makes everyone there his enemy as he leaves because they keep telling him that the person who owns the ranch is um right now taking a nap now First thing he thinks about it is that that's a lot of bull. That's a lot of bullshit. They killed him, and now they're just using his uh, his uh, sort of his land, his and, land yeah. as their own. So he fight. He doesn't fight against them, but like argues against them that he's fine. He but keeps he, he, something. I noticed when he gets to the the family, they they hate the police and they hate the establishment and stuff like that. And initially, it seems like the exchange is going really well. He says how he um, one of the kind of heads of the of the family, lower than Charles Manson, is a man called Tex, and Tex is the one that he's he's a male amongst all these young females, and he's obviously kind of like. A leader sort of yeah. thing. And he, he has to come and check Cliff out to make sure that he's not a threat. Mm -hmm. And he he says, oh, Tex. Is that some sort of Texan? Have you ever been to Texas? Is, is that some sort of Texas name? And he says, yep. And Brad Pitt... Well, he, he kind of says... Um, he says, I'm from some place you'd not know in yeah. Texas. Yeah. And that leads Brad Pitt's character saying, oh, I've been to Texas, I was in a chain gang, I was in... Houston. Uh, yeah, Houston in jail. 
and um, he he says that he breaks the policeman's jaw, and that to the delight of the family, like they they love that sort yeah. of thing. But then as soon as he starts pushing on this George matter, and where's George? And we said earlier, like George is obviously incapacitated at this point, and he's not dead. It does heavily lead you to think that he's dead. That yeah. scene, yeah, because every everyone seems kind of fishy when he asks a question and they're, they're like, uh, so, uh, yeah, he's right now he's having nap time. Um, and then you sort of see, like, no one really talks to this, like, head honcho girl that is in his house. But when he goes up to the door... She has the exact same story as everyone else. So obviously they must, it's either they must uh, practice it, practice it. That's or, like the stock line they say when people ask about George. Yeah. Or it's true, which it or, does end up being. Yeah, which is, yeah. So he, he sort of goes up to the house and the girl locks the door, but everyone's outside watching, watching him. Just doing, uh, thinking that he he will do something irrational, which well they think he's going to basically decide that what they're doing to George is not positive and probably call the police or something like that, which mm -hmm. he doesn't do because Cliff is very much a he, he's a rebel, but he has morals and he has standards, and this mm -hmm. is seen you you see this directly after what happens because what has happened as he's in the house talking to George is that the family have basically decided to... One of them has stabbed his tyre and in some sort of... Which is one of the two guys that are there. Yeah, there's two guys there. There's just two guys and about 20 girls. This guy's a bit younger. Yeah. <clears throat> um, I love the line, actually, as Cliff's walking out the house. Um, she shouts at Cliff. George isn't the one that's blind, you are, at him. <laughs> yeah, which yeah. is like such a hippie thing to say. It, it made me laugh. Um, but Cliff proceeds to beat seven shades of shit out of the guy that stabbed his tyre in front of the yeah. family. Just to tell him to fix it. And because that, you know, that's a good moral. Like, he says fix it first and he won't fix it. Yeah. He just laughs at him. Obviously, says, like, fuck you. Yeah, Cliff's been wronged here. And the guy gets a beat, and because of it, sort of thing. That, that, it, there's not many good morals in this film, but that is an admirable moral. Like mm. you know, they've stabbed your tire, you fixed the tire. That's right. Yeah. So, but you see that, like, even when he's telling him to fix the tire, and then beats the shit out of him, all the girls start walking up to him, and he's just there, like, if you take one more step, I'm gonna Brilliant. knock his. T-foul. Yeah. I mean, he, that is a little bit of ultra-violence there. Mm. You get a little bit of that. And ultimately what you find is, whereas Cliff can be seen as a rugged individual that takes no bullshit, he has respect. Yeah. And the family have, like, zero respect for right. themselves. For you, you see, actually, when he goes into George's house, that there's, like, it's filthy. It's just Everything around filth everywhere. Yeah, and there's no a, cleaning, no nothing. There's actually a rat tr caught in a rat trap, but it's not dead yet, and it's just moaning in the background. And like, li imagine living with that in a room. Yeah, that imagine. woman's in there watching television while this rat is just screaming. Yeah, trying, trying to get away. That was pretty visceral, in my opinion. Like that, the pretty uh, gruesome. Mm. But you see that. So you see that cliff. Kind of meets the pe like the um, the sort of henchman that uh, Charles Manson has. Yeah. So when he gets to the last bit of the film, the last half an hour, it's these same characters. It's yeah, it's all the same characters. I would just say big... yeah. Before we go into that last bit of the film, um, I was going to say that the. I can't remember what I was going to say. So what we're going to do is we're going to move on to the last part of the film. The film stops um, and six months pass by. And this, um, this relates to the first scene that you see in the film 
where Leonardo DiCaprio's character is told by Al Pacino, movie executive character, that he should star in Italian films. He's, yeah. he's been offered some Italian westerns, and this is actually what triggers him to cry, because he's like, have you seen Italian westerns? Yeah. They're, no, you, They're shit. Yeah. <laughs> no one ever sees them. Yeah. That's um, what he's saying, yeah. And, but it actually transpires that his trip to Europe is, is quite beneficial for him, yeah. and he, he gets... He makes more money than he thought he would have. Yeah, and he, 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 see, he finds success in Italy. He also finds his wife there. Yeah, he finds a wife, and he... On the plane ride home is where we are, is where the film picks back up after a, a brief kind of uh, transition of six months. Mm -hmm. And it's at the end of his trip to Europe. And he's kind of said to Cliff, this is it now. We're kind of selling the house. Um, we're going to try and put all the money in the bank and live off that. We're getting a, a condo on, by a lake. And we're just going to see out retirement. And in doing that, we're going to have to let you go, Cliff, sort of thing as... It's not like we, it's more, mo mostly Rick saying, I'm going to have to let you go because I can't afford you anymore. Yeah, he's just saying, like, me and the wife are going to have to, like, let you go as well. That's right, because it, it feels like he's telling Cliff that he's not going to make any more movies. Or yeah, he's, yeah. He's, he's, his, his stardom has finished. Yeah, he seems a bit more content with it because he saw that success in Italy and whatnot. He's not as emotionally unstable as the beginning of the yeah, film. Yeah, And this obviously leads to them having one last drink together, one last night where they get absolutely trolled and say goodbye to one another, as they've been large parts of each other's lives over the past uh, few years. And they do indeed go out. I should point out, actually, just before we, we get here, that... Earlier on in the film, one of the hippie girls from the family sells Brad Pitt's character a cigarette that has been dipped in LSD. Acid. Yeah, acid. Mm -hmm. And he has saved that at um, Leonardo DiCaprio. What? In his house. Yeah, in his house. What's Leonardo DiCaprio's character's name? Rick. Rick. He stored <laughs> that in Rick's house. And they get absolutely blasted together. They come back in a taxi. And, and he remembers. He remembers about the cigarette. the cigarette. All throughout this scene, it's intercut with shots of Sharon Tate going to a restaurant and coming back. And there's also a clock now in the corner of the screen that lets us know what time it is during that night. So it all seems to lead up. Sharon Tate being in the film, Charles Manson being in the film, you know at some point that the murder is going to come up. Like, that is kind of like what the whole film is building to. You... You can't have those characters in a film and not address the fact that... There's a murder. Yeah, that there's a murder. So you, you Obviously can't... Obviously, there's a sort of twist. Well, yeah. Well, yeah, we'll get there. You you know that this is it now. We're building up. Mm -hmm. And Sharon Tate and Cliff and Rick arrive home roughly at the same time. And we see Cliff decides to smoke his acid-dipped cigarette. And he goes out for a walk with his dog. I just remembered what I was going to say a second ago. We were talking about the dirtiness of the family's house. Yeah. Um, obviously, at the beginning of the film, we see Cliff's trailer that he lives in. And that's dirty as well. And it's dirty as hell, but it's organised. He has a system within that dirtiness. Yeah. Sort of thing. And there's he feeds his dog at the beginning, and he's very... There's an element of respect between him and his dog where he's pouring the food out into the dog's bowl and the dog's kind of salivating and, and yelping in the excitement of the food. And he says, look, you yelp, you don't eat. So he's a man of principle mm -hmm. sort of thing. The, the, the dirtiness in his trailer is nothing like the dirtiness in the oh, family's nothing. house. It, but Absolutely it, it's still nothing. dirtiness, but it's, it's a respectful dirtiness mm -hmm. sort of thing. Um, that was my point there. And that leads me to be able to say that he smokes his acid-dipped cigarette and takes his dog for a walk. His dog is his best friend other than Rick, I'd say. There's a good, strong bond between him and his dog. Whose name is Randy. You got the names down. Yeah. Randy the dog. So him and Randy walk off into the woods and he smoke, he's, he's about to go on a psychedelic trip. Then we cut to... Actually, as he's walking down the street with his dog, 
you see the car. Like, well, yeah, I was about to say the car pull up. Yeah, the car pulls up as he's walking down. They go past him. Obviously, they don't sort of notice him. No. And in that car is Tex from the family mm. and three other girls. And they park outside and it looks like they're getting a scope of the area. Rick Dalton, meanwhile, is inside making margaritas, carrying on his evening as his wife has uh, gone to bed. And he hears the car that they're driving in is... Very loud. <laughs> it is form later described by Rick Dalton as a mechanical asshole, which was <laughs> a, <laughs> a phrase that I will be putting into my vernacular from now on. And it's very loud, so this causes Rick to go outside and, you know, he's intoxicated, so he berates them, really. He's, and again, you kind of see that class clash of the hippies and the, the people that are doing something with their lives. They, he says to them, oh, you thought you'd come up here and smoke dope on a quiet road? Mm -hmm. We'll try doing that next time in a piece of crap car that isn't a mechanical asshole. Yeah. <laughs> Which makes me absolutely hail in laughter. Just because he's like, he's not so, like, so tough as a person. Like, you see, like, you don't see him being, like, a very, like, um... Or I'll get in a fight whenever sort of person. He's mm. more of a a um a docile person. Cause like when you see when you see one thing that uh, one thing that Rick does is he takes oh no no Cliff gives Rick his glasses when he first starts crying about mm. his career. And when they get Home. When um, Cliff takes Rick home, he says, I'm going to need my glasses back. And Rick then says, oh, who's going to stop me? Are you, are, or are you ready to fight? Yeah. And, and then Cliff gets into like that sort of like fine stance and you can see like Rick like jump back. You like, oh, so, yeah. yeah. You see <clears throat> Fizz like, oh, sorry, sorry. I didn't mean to take it. And then gives it back. So like when you see... Rick in this scene being so aggressive. He's a different towards, person, really. Because yeah. he's been, his self-esteem has been kind of beaten up at the beginning of the film. And obviously after this trip to Italy, he's, he's a more confident man, mm. sort of thing. And this leads the car of full of the family to drive back down the road. And they, we finally, we get a shot inside the car and we, um, we see their plan. And they are fans of Bounty Law, because that was a show in the 50s when they were growing up. Mm -hmm. And they're like, was that... Was that Rick? What's his name in Bounty Law? Jake. Jake something. Was I that Drake, Jake Tresco, whatever his name is? Yeah. I used to love that guy. I had a... But no, they, no, they say Rick's name. Was Rick Dalton, Rick, yeah. Yeah, was that Rick Dalton but then, from Bounty Law? Yeah, they also talk about... They say his character name as mm -hmm. well in yeah. other um, sentences. And... He says, like, I had my favorite lunchbox was a Bounty Law lunchbox. And that triggers a girl in the back to say, I've had this idea in our acid dropping sessions that we learned to murder people from the television, from shows like Bounty Law. So let's go kill the people that taught us what murder was. Um, there's a short section where one of the girls kind of chickens out on the idea and that leaves just three of them. Mm -hmm. And they, she drives off in the car. She makes an excuse. That under she, the guise that she's going to get her knife. Yeah, she's like, makes an excuse. Oh, I left my, my knife in the car. And, and she, she goes, she starts going towards the car. She says, wait, wait, wait. Tex says, wait, wait, wait. I locked the car, so here's the keys. Obviously, she was going to make a run for it and not take the car. But as soon as she saw the opportunity that she gave him the keys for the car, she decided to drive off. Mm. And then instead of leaving, Tex and the other two girls decide, let's just carry on the mission. Just carry on the mission. Yeah, they just carry on as three. And coincidentally, Cliff is just returning yep. from his acid trip. Yeah. And he's, 
I thought this was really cool as well. He's feeding his dog again. Yeah. Um, and the acid's obviously kicking in because he goes to turn the lights on and absolutely like blinds himself. That's way too much <laughs> yeah. for him. Yeah. And he, he, the dog is on the settee waiting for its food and it, it starts yelping. Mm -hmm. And he goes, hey, and points at the dog. But obviously like the acid is like making his hand multiply and that's when he, he really starts he's like whoa whoa and yeah, he kind of yeah. gets distracted about the whole thing and he he talks to the dog and says look i'm trying the best i can under the circumstances um, and walks towards the dog and but the only the reason why the dog is he doesn't yelp he barks yeah so he barks because he knows nah the dog didn't know at that point yet it's only it's once he turns the music on that the dog knows yeah, but he doesn't. He doesn't do that finger thing because he's saying. Well, he's just here. Yeah, I think he. It's not. It's just any noise that the dog makes when it's waiting for food. He yeah. doesn't want to hear any noise come out the dog. That's right. But he yeah. does that. That whole um, thing with his finger that he was doing was before he says about I'm doing the best I can because that that scene leads him to get out the kitchen and stand in the middle of the room. That's when they bust in. Nah, he turn, He goes and turns music on yeah. first. Yeah, yeah, he does, he does. I get it. But he does that finger thing a, lo a long time before he turns the music on. Yeah. Yeah. So him going into the room because of the hand thing, Yeah. going into the middle of the room, that's not when they burst in. I don't think you're getting what I'm, I'm trying to say. So he does... He does He's he does the the tripping thing. He's like, oh, uh, this is this is weird. It, it's kind of affecting him. Like at that point, it's affecting him. He's like, oh, look at this. Because he so, licks the dog food. <laughs> yeah, he looks at the dog food, smells it, then he licks it. He's like, oh. And I know. But then he goes to turn the light on, and then that's when he blinds him. Turns it turns it off. Goes back, gets more food. Or the dog. He pours the food into the thing and he actually gets down on all fours and looks at the food. No, he doesn't. He does. He definitely does. He goes down to the bowl's level and looks at it because it's all like he's tripping and it, it looks funny in the bowl. And he proceeds to turn to them. It doesn't matter, really. It all doesn't matter what sequence, what order all that shit happened yeah. in. All that matters is the fucking Manson family burst in and try to murder him. And what proceeds to happen is an absolute fucking bloodbath. Cliff. It's, it, it goes from, cause obviously this guy's got a gun. So he's pointing it at Cliff. And then he's got two other girls who have knives. And he says, Tex says to one of the girls, go in the other room. No. And get the wife. No, no. Tex asks him, is there anyone else in the house? Yeah. And he says, it's just me and uh, another person sleeping. Mm. So then he Tex says to the other girl, go get the other person in the living room. She comes in, it's all happening. And just before he's about, one point to make is that Cliff has his dog trained very, very so, well. Yeah, and the dog is is waiting. But I love... Brad Pitt, before like the violence all starts, obviously Brad Pitt's tripping off acid. Cliff is tripping and this gives him a complete sense of nonchalantness about this whole situation. Like he's he, tripping. He thinks that it might not be real sort of thing. So he, he's kind of dealing with the whole thing and laughing about it whilst he's got a gun pointed in his face. And just at the moment when it seems like he's about to get his head popped off, he clicks his fingers and the dog no, starts... he clicks his mouth. He goes... Does that matter? Yes. Does it? He does. It's of not that it deep, does. bro. It's not that deep. <laughs> it's that deep. We go into the film. So he makes a noise with a part of his body and then the <laughs> yeah. dog... That's better. The dog then proceeds to absolutely mutilate him. The two girls run at him. He's grabbing their heads and slamming them into walls. The dog is absolutely mutilating people. He... He had at this point he has a a can of uh, dog food in his hand. A can of whoop ass. <laughs> and one of the girls, when they start running at him, 
he grabs this can and throws it so hard towards her face that it literally takes one of her eyes out. And it looks like she ain't, ain't got an eye in her socket. And she's just on the floor screaming her absolute <laughs> guts out. And I'm, I've got to say, the, I said this to Martin the minute we walked out the theatre, and it sounds gruesome. The whole sequence, I was ear to ear smiling. It was like it was so fun to and watch because, I, it was like that was the Tarantino craziness that I was looking for. But he saved it. It was ultra concentrated into this end. like literal twenty minute scene. Then, one of the girls bursts out the window yeah. and into finds the pool area. Rick in the pool listening to music. She falls in the pool, starts, startles Rick and starts firing the gun into the air, which proceeds Rick to run out the pool and grab one of his old movie props that we actually see earlier on in the film. And you've probably seen in the trailer Leonardo DiCaprio toasting Nazis with a flamethrower. Well, this same flamethrower makes an appearance and he burns this girl in the pool with a gun to a crisp. Absolutely. Like, she, there is... No way you can recognize her face. There is no way. I don't want to talk about this scene too much because it, it, it's really something that you've got to go and experience. If if you're doubting going to see this film, it's worth it. Like, it's 100%, 100%. worth it. It's a slow burner that explodes at the end. And, it, and it, like, it just needs to be watched. Yeah. I, also, at the very end... Just carry on. In the ending of the film, you're met with, finally, the, the title screen. And it says, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And I think this ending of, obviously, you, you go in expecting to see the Sharon Tate murder, and it ends with uh, Rick speaking to Sharon Tate and actually being introduced to her for the first time. And they, she loves him in Bounty Law. And they go, he goes up to our house, and it you see why it's called Once Upon a Time in Hollywood because it's a fairy tale, very much like in Glorious Bastards, which Tarantino's done in the past. It, it's it's like a spin-off of actual events. Like, Hitler didn't actually die in a movie theatre, get murdered in a movie theatre, did he? It's, it's, it's like this alternate universe that Tarantino has proposed. And um, I really think this film, it exists in this nice little pocket. You get a, a great view of 1960s culture in L.A. A lot of different things happen. There's a Bruce Lee cameo that we didn't speak about that it, you should just go and watch. I thought that was really cool, the way they did that. And you get... We often see the output of Hollywood of in this era, um, and we don't get to see behind the curtains so much. And this, I believe, even though it's fictionalized in its events and locations and the people, there's very much a realness to the emotional aspect of this film. And that that's what I took away from it anyway. You get to see the emotions of an industry that you don't normally get to see the emotions of. I took more away, uh, I took more away the fact um, that it, it shows you what it's like being an actor at that day and it, that day and age, where mm. it's if you ain't got it, you ain't making it, and if you've failed, if you have done one good role, it may not mean that you all your other roles will be better. It doesn't guarantee you a career. You've got no. to constantly yeah, strive yeah, for that exactly. perfection. Yeah, exactly. That, that can cause some mental problems, mm. having that attitude all the time. Because it just puts you in a position where it's like you have to you have to sometimes just be like, you know what, today I'm just doing this for hours and hours and hours, trying to perfect every single aspect of what I'm saying, what I'm doing, and how I am doing it. Well, there's a there's a saying out there, Martin, that if you put 10,000 hours into something, you'll master it. And I believe that to be true. It's a long time, 10,000 hours. It is. It is a, a long time. I get... And I would see why it would be true. But 
But like a lot of activities have different aspects to them. So does that mean that you have to, for every aspect, you have to put 10,000 hours? No, just the thing it. as a whole, like playing the guitar, woodwork, like just general things, skills, acting. Yeah. Oh, uh, yeah, but like uh, at the same time, like let's say, um, I don't know, let's say American football, mm -hmm. rugby, like. I know putting ten thousand hours into it will get will get you really good at the game, and like practicing a lot will get you good at the game. But at the end of the day, you're playing against someone that's completely unpredictable. Yeah, there's an element of them. Um, yeah, you can only be that is out of your control. You okay. should only focus on the stuff that you can control on, mm -hmm. that you can control because that. That's all you can affect sort of mm -hmm. thing. So if you can perfect that and put 10,000 hours into that, you shouldn't worry about everyone. It's like that little girl said in the film, everyone's striving, you should be striving for perfection. Not worrying, perfection is not worrying about everyone else being perfect. That's it, yeah. It's being comfortable within yourself. Mm -hmm. um, so this film is slightly different in the sense that this is the first film we've discussed that me and Martin have both not seen, both of us. We've gone in blind. Mm -hmm. And it's left us with... It's a little bit harder to come up with things to talk about purely because we've not 100% processed the film yet. So what you're seeing is quite a raw, our first impression sort of thing. Yeah. It's like a little taste and... You know, maybe if this carries on and we end up doing well, we'll come back to this film at some point, and maybe our views will have changed on it. Yeah, um, maybe. Yeah, maybe like uh, down the line, a few uh, hundred episodes or so, <laughs> and we'll we'll come back to it and see what we think about it after we've reviewed a certain amount of films. Mm. But yeah, you know I mean? this is is something we'll be doing. I've I've seen a lot of films and I. I, that was the original idea of this podcast to show Martin films that I thought were completely out there and and get his impression on them. Um, but as we move forward, there will be lots of episodes where we watch things. You, uh, we're planning to do episodes where Martin, I watch some films that Martin considers to be his favourite films and we'll go in and watch films at the cinema that we've both not seen. So you'll be getting a wide variety of different episodes and uh, and impressions sort of thing And we, as we introduce more, more ways of discussing films to the show. And hopefully, I mean... I, I would like to do maybe shorter episodes, Martin, where we talk about songs. Like you could do like just or albums, yeah, and then albums and stuff like that. So um, we're just trying something new out today. It's a bit more of a fresher take. I hope you guys enjoyed it. And as normal, I hope you check out mipltd.org. I hope you go to our Instagram, mipltd. You've got Martin Diverge on Instagram and Jack Oland, mip. My last name is spelled D-U-V-E-R-G-E for anyone out there trying to find me. And it's all together, Martin Diverge. No spaces, done nothing. As I said, we've got merch coming up. We've got films being uh, coming out soon. So keep an eye on what we're doing. We're going to keep churning these podcasts out once a week and hopefully have more to bring. Every Friday. Every Friday we're going to be here. Look out for us. Once upon a time in Hollywood, it's not that it's deep, not bro. That it's not 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 that